We're going to open up God's Word together now, but we're not going to open up to where it says in the bulletin to open it up to. Uh, we are going to open it up to Philippians 1. I spoke on that at Jen's funeral yesterday, and um, I'm going to speak on it again tonight in a little more detail. And I found that once my mind gets going on a certain passage, it's hard to jump to yet another passage yet. So uh, I told the elders we're going to be in Philippians 1 tonight, and we are going to be in Philippians 1 tonight. So Philippians 1, uh, we're going to read, uh, I think, 19 to 26, but we're just going to focus there on verse 21, which is a very familiar verse. So Philippians 1, 19 to 26. I'll begin reading there. I think you see the heading if you're using the Bible out of the pew to live as Christ. And I'll begin right after that, very end of verse 18. Hear God's word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And I direct your attention just to verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's far the reading of God's word. Your congregation, I want, to think, I want you to think for a moment about something that would be to your advantage. What would be to your advantage? Perhaps an increase in the price of milk would be to your advantage. Uh, perhaps an increase in the stock market would be to your advantage. I'm not sure too many of us would be at a disadvantage uh, if that were to happen. Perhaps a promotion at work would be to your advantage. Perhaps, you know, having a certain teacher at school would be to your advantage if you're a student and, you know, there are certain teachers that you maybe think, oh, that'd be better for me than this one or that one. Um, perhaps having a certain athlete on your team uh, would be to your advantage. As an outdoorsman, it occurred to me lately just how much technology serves to my advantage uh, when it comes to hunting or fishing. Uh, last year, I had a nice, nice buck. It was moving past my stand uh, every day for four days in a row, uh, and it was moving between 2 and 4 p.m., so I saw this, uh, that it had been through there four days in a row, and on the fifth day, I went out at 1.30 and shot him at 4 o'clock, all because of technology. Would have never been out there at 1 o'clock otherwise. Uh, Last winter, I caught a mess of nice big perch. Uh, if you pay me enough, I'll tell you where I got them, but no, that's, that's not true. Uh, I was up on Lake Skigmog near Traverse City and got a nice mess of nice big perch, and, and under the water, I had my, my 
AquaView fishing camera, and uh, this camera allowed me to dodge the little ones and then put it in front of the big ones. It was really awesome. I'm like, this isn't even fair. Technology was to my advantage. Technology is to our advantage. Now, here in Philippians 121, the Apostle Paul states something that would be advantageous to him, and it's probably not something that we would have counted as such, but it's death. It's death. He says in Philippians 121, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That word gain simply means gain or, or um, profit or advantage, right? To die is to my advantage. That's what he's, that's what he's saying there. Now, that's, that's absolutely crazy, right? I mean, in the world we live in, uh, it tells us that to die is to lose. If you watch a movie, who is it that loses? It's not the one who lives, it's the one who dies, isn't it? That's the one who loses. In life, who is it that you envy? Who is it that you're jealous of? Who is it that you say, oh, isn't she lucky? It's not usually the people on the obituary page in the newspaper, is it? And yet God's Word, as it so often does, gives us a different perspective. God's Word here says that to die is gain. I want to think about this truth with you tonight. And we're going to think about it from, from several angles. First, for whom is death gain? Second, how is death gain? Third, why is death gain? And fourth, when is death gain? Oh, it looks like I have a different outline in my sermon than I did at that paragraph, so just bear with me. We're going to ask all those questions, but maybe not in that order. <laughs> I remember writing that, kind of putting that in there, and then as I worked through the sermon, realizing that it didn't quite fit in that order and modifying it, but I never actually modified it there. So somewhere in this sermon, all four of those questions are going to be answered. The first question is, why is death gain? I don't know where that was in there, but why is death gain? We must think for a moment about what Scripture tells us death is. Death is the curse which has come upon man because of his sin. In Romans 6.23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death. Death was Adam and Eve's reward, wasn't it? For eating from the tree of knowledge in good and evil. Death is what God owes each and every one of us who have rebelled against Him and His Word. Death is God's just punishment against sin. And yet Paul says death is gain, and we have to ask, why? What happened to death that turned it from being this horrible thing which we brought upon ourselves because of our sin, and in which God carried out His judgment upon us because of our sin, to something which Paul now says is to my advantage? What happened? Something happened. Well, we know what happened. Somebody else's death paid for our sins. Isaiah tells us about this someone, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul writes, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. And Peter doesn't want to get left out in speaking about this man who died for our sins. Peter writes, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Do you get it, friends? That which any one of us gains in death, we gain only in and through and because of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrificial death on the cross paid for our sins. And because His death as our substitute paid our debt against God's justice, that means that our death does not pay the debt of our sins but instead puts an end to our sinning and serves as our entrance into eternal life. Do you see, in in Jesus' death, as our perfect substitute before God, he, He transformed the grave. He sanctified the grave. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so death was like this great enemy. And then Jesus was swallowed up by death. And He came out the other side. And death is now, really, the believer's friend. <laughs> death now serves as our entrance into eternal life. He conquered the grave. He sanctified the grave. He transformed the grave. Second, for whom is death gain? For whom is death gain? We live in a world that certainly declares that death is gain for all. One of my favorite things R.C. Sproul ever said is that the prevailing view in our world today, and maybe even in the church today, is not justification by faith alone, but justification by death alone. The people in our world, and even the people in the church, unfortunately, seem to think that all a person needs to do is die, and they'll be saved. They'll go to heaven. And yet, Scripture says otherwise, doesn't it? Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of the, the sheep and the goats, and in that story, He says to those on His left, He says, depart from Me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus never talked about hell, right? That's what Rob Bell would say. I don't know what Bible he was reading. Luke 16, we see this as well. Here we read, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat which, that which fell from the rich man's table. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. (laughs) The point is, Death is not gain for everyone. No, for some, death is a great loss. And the fact is, death is only gain for those who can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. It's only a gain for those who have the front half of verse 21. It's kind of a strange thing Paul says here, right? For me to live as Christ, don't think too hard about it. I, you know, you, you've seen the bumper stickers, the t-shirts that say football is life, or soccer is life, or volleyball is life, fishing is life. Well, that's basically what Paul's saying here, only it's Christ is life. Christ is life. When Paul says that Christ is life, he's saying Christ is anything and everything to me. Christ is the sum and the substance of my existence. He means that the grace of Christ is the governing principle of his life. The rule of Christ is the, or sorry, the word of Christ is the rule of his life. The glory of Christ is the aim of his life. The power of Christ is the driving force behind his life. The reign of Christ on high is the, the peace of his life. The return of Christ is the hope of his life. You, you get the picture. When he says, for me to live is Christ, he means that in life, Christ was all things to him. There was nothing in his life which did not point him ultimately back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That isn't insignificant. We can't miss the first half of verse 21. Those for whom death is gain are those who are bound to Christ in this life by faith. If you're not bound to Christ here, if you're not trusting in Christ here for the forgiveness of your sins, then the Bible's clear, death will not be gain for you. Death will be a great loss for you. This should move us tonight to to make sure that we are living by faith in the Son of God. It should move us to examine our own hearts and our own minds and our own lives and and, and just to, to think, am I walking in faith and repentance? It's good for us to do that, and this should move us to do that. It should also move us to be concerned for our unbelieving friends and neighbors who, who if they were to die today, would not enter the joy and glory of heaven but would enter the agony of hell. It's, a, it's not a comfortable thing for me to say, but it's what Scripture says. And hopefully that moves us to pray for our neighbors. And hopefully it moves us to, to share the gospel with our neighbors. And hopefully it moves us even to, to urge and to implore our neighbors to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. One pastor says this, could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and give no hand? Can you sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? Third, when is death gain? When is death gain? 
Scripture allows us to give at least two answers to this question. The first answer is immediately. Death is gained immediately for the Christian. This is implied here in our text where Paul sets going to be with Christ in opposition to remaining with the Philippians. If the believer was not immediately ushered into glory at death, then certainly Paul would have said, you know what, actually it's better for me to stay here with these people. No doubt we see the same truth stated clearly on the cross when Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Death, death is an immediate gain. This puts an end to two erroneous doctrines that float around the church. The first doctrine I think is kind of fallen by the wayside, although I could be wrong in that. But the first is the doctrine of purgatory, which comes out of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, This was big at the time of the Reformation, and uh, there was that Johann Tetzel who really ticked off Luther, and, you know, he was trying to sell indulgences, and he would say, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, basically saying, buy your grandma out of purgatory. That was kind of his spiel. He made a lot of money doing that. Luther got ticked, which was right and which was good, but, but purgatory teaches that there's kind of like this, this waiting room uh, where those who die have to spend time paying for their sins before they're, you know, able to go on to heaven. The second doctrine has a little more traction today than that one, and we'll find it a little more even in Protestant circles today. It's the doctrine of soul sleep, and the doctrine of soul sleep uh, kind of states that believers just sort of lie in in an unconscious state of sleep until the resurrection. And therefore, there is no conscious enjoyment of heaven between when a person dies and when Christ returns. They're just kind of of sleeping. They're just kind of of unconscious until Christ returns. And that comes because of the euphemism Paul often uses for death. He calls it sleep and I guess there is a sense in which Christ has made death sleep for the believer because they will awake again, and it is appropriate, but it's a euphemism. And certainly if that were the case, that if the believer's soul just went to sleep until Christ's return, then Paul would have said, you know what, it's better for me to stay here working with you Philippians and just to live as long as I can to make it to the end, right? If Paul wasn't going immediately to Christ, then he would have thought it was better for him to stay with Philippians, right, and to continue laboring among them. He does not believe that. Death is an immediate gain. I desire to go and be with Christ, he says in verse 23. So death is gain immediately for the Christian. The second answer is death is gain eternally for the Christian. In life, it seems like our gains are always always temporary, doesn't it? We get ahead on laundry or dishes, at least my wife does. Next thing you know, she's behind again. We get ahead financially, the car breaks down, we need a new one, we're behind again. We get ahead at work, you know, we're on top of everything our boss wants to do. Before we know it, we're behind again. There's a stack of papers on our, on our desk again. That's life in this fallen world. Our gains are always temporary, they're always fleeting. And yet in, the, in death, the believer experiences an eternal and everlasting gain. Can't even fathom such a thing. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 5, 24, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. Now, here's the thing. 
about our immediate and everlasting gain, something we always ought to keep in mind. The way this gain looks now is not the way this gain will always look. For the Bible speaks about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Thessalonians 4. And people wonder, how does this work? You know, we say the person dies and goes to be with Jesus, and yet we speak about Jesus coming back and the dead being raised. And, you know, how do we, how do we fit all of these things together? Well, here's what we believe. Uh, when a believer dies, his or her soul is separated from their body. And his or her soul goes to be with Jesus in paradise while the body remains here on earth awaiting the return of Christ. And so we had a funeral yesterday, and there was a coffin right here, and there was a body in the coffin, and, and of course that was Jen's body, and, and Jen's body remains, but Jen's spirit or soul is with Christ in glory. That's what we believe. And 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, we believe this not just because we, you know, sounds nice, but we believe this because 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that when Christ returns, He will bring with Him those who've fallen asleep in Him. He will bring with him those who've died, and, and he will reunite, he will, their souls will come, and he will reunite their souls with new, resurrected, glorified bodies. And it's in those new, resurrected, glorified bodies then, which the souls of believers are united with, it's there and in that way that believers will spend all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So at death, the believer's soul goes to be immediately with Christ in glory. And the believer experiences the joy and glory of heaven in their soul. And then at the return of Christ, believers receive new, resurrected, glorified bodies. And their souls, which were with Christ in glory, are reunited to those bodies. And then we experience the joy and glory of heaven in both body and soul in the new heavens and the new earth. Last question, how is death gain? How is death gain? Sometimes we think that death is gain simply because in death a person experiences a release from all of the pain and suffering and misery in this life. And so we might think that in death a person they gain Relief, and we just kind of leave it at that. They're no longer suffering, right? They've gained relief. But make no mistake, the, the gain of death goes far beyond simply the gain of relief. The gain of relief is absolutely and gloriously and wonderfully included, but it goes far beyond that. No, the, the, the gain that the believer experiences in death is the gain of Christ Himself. Paul says this in verse 23, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Not I desire to depart and put an end to my suffering. Not I desire to depart and just experience relief. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, he says. Paul understands that it's only through death that he'll experience the fullness of blessed fellowship with his Savior. And the thought of experiencing this fullness of blessed fellowship, the thought of experience of seeing Christ face to face, it moves him to say, and death is gain. Death is gain. 
So the, the difference in verse 21 between the first half and the last half, the difference is, you know, Christ by faith or Christ by sight, really. And Paul thinks of, you know, Christ by faith and to live is Christ, but death is gain because then you have Christ by, by sight. I made this point a couple weeks ago. Uh, when we looked at John 14, too often our thoughts of heaven are, are devoid of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the Bible is clear that it is Jesus who makes heaven heaven. It is Jesus who himself is the believer's great reward. In John 14, that's the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you and take you to be with me, or excuse me, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. He had just told them he was going to prepare room for them in the Father's house, but he doesn't say, I'm going to take you to that room I prepared. He said, I'm going to take you to be where I am. 1 Thessalonians 4, he you know, we read about the resurrection of the dead, and, and Paul says that after the dead are raised, you know, what's going to happen? We will be with each other forever? No, we will be with the Lord forever. The Lord Jesus Christ is what makes heaven heaven, and it's being with the Lord Jesus Christ that makes death gain, great gain. The Lord Jesus is that glorious. He is that majestic. He is that lovely. When any one of us, I will guarantee you this, when any one of us awakes in glory and beholds the Lord Jesus Christ, we will say, you are the one my soul longed for. You are the one that I've always wanted and needed. I wasn't always aware of that, but that's it. You are the one. We see a glimpse of this in Psalm 17. The very end of Psalm 17, the psalmist says this, And I, in righteousness, will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. And when he says, when I awake, the thought is, when I awake in death. What looks like sleep on our side of the curtain looks like waking up on heaven's side of the curtain. Eyes close on this side, eyes open on the other side. And the psalmist says, when I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. I will need nothing else but you, Lord Jesus. Everything else, my mom and dad whom I've missed, my husband who, my, that's all just bonus. You, Jesus, are the one my soul longs for. I want to leave you with a few quotes tonight, which hopefully put this all in perspective for us and help us view death as maybe a Christian ought. The first quote is from a man named G.B. Card. He was an Anglican, lived uh, early 1900s, died, I think, in the 60s or 80s. I can't remember the number I saw, but this is what Card says. He says, the idea that life on earth is so infinitely precious that the death which robs us of it must be the ultimate tragedy is precisely the idolatry that God is often trying to combat. I'll read that again. The idea that life on earth is so infinitely precious that the death which robs us of it must be the ultimate tragedy is precisely the idolatry that God is often trying to combat. There's truth in there. I mean, make no mistake, we are to be people who are pro life to the hilt. 
God's word calls us to honor and value and cherish and promote life. Life is a gift from God, and yet there comes a point at which our view of life in this world and our attachment to life in this world, it becomes idolatrous and it becomes unhealthy. Sinners always have a way of taking good things and turning them into things that they worship and things that become the ultimate good. And I I can't help but wonder if we're seeing some of that with this whole coronavirus thing taking place in our society and with, you know, many of the extreme measures that society is taking. You know, that, 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 that death is this thing that must be avoided at all costs, even to the point where we have to basically stop living to avoid it. And that's where some have, have gotten in all of this and, you know, certainly need to be cautious and certainly there's different ex- ways of exercising caution and valuing and promoting life. But, but there does come a point at which the desire to simply avoid the grave overrules all and, and, and we kind of become misguided in our approach to it. I'll let you kind of chew on that. Here's another one from John Kelvin. Kelvin says this, let us consider this settled that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Let us consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. If that's true, and it certainly was true for the Apostle Paul, then I must confess tonight that I have a long way to go (laughs) in the school of Christ. I imagine you do too. And so let's close tonight by asking God's help in joyfully awaiting the day of death and the final resurrection, even as Paul did. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise that you have conquered the grave. You have You have honestly turned it into something that was our worst enemy and made it something that will prove to be, in all likelihood, our greatest friend. Help us to be people who can look at the grave in the way that the Apostle Paul did, with hope, with faith, with joy, and with confidence in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We should pick out a better song. I had that one chosen for the other sermon, but how about Abide With Me? Would that be a good one? We'll do Abide With Me. If you find the number, I'll give the blessing. Why don't we stand? Dear friends, receive the parting blessing tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen. 419. Thank you, Gord. 419. Let's do uh, verses 1, 2, 4, and 5. 1, 2, 4, and 5.
Thank you.